Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Job chapter 38. It was journalist David Rennick who once wrote this. He said, the world is crazy, beautiful, ugly, complicated, and it keeps moving on from crisis, uh, from crisis to strangeness to beauty to weirdness to tragedy. Doesn't that kind of sum up the world that we live in? We are no strangers to tragedy. Sometime after midnight on March 30th, 2008, I got a phone call that pastors hate getting. It was a call to come quickly to the emergency room of Jenny Stewart Medical Center in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. I was serving as the associate pastor, minister of youth and music at Crofton Baptist Church, which is just north of Hopkinsville there. And through the phone call, I learned that one of my recently graduated youth and his girlfriend and their newborn baby had just been in a serious car wreck on Highway 6880 between Elkton and Hopkinsville. She was still in high school. She was a senior softball star on the Christian County High uh, softball team. And she was driving them home late that night after a long day of playing softball, multiple games of softball here in Bowling Green. The mother was driving, the father was in the back seat with their baby. The baby had gotten hungry and so he took him out of his car seat to feed and to burp him. And this is an 18 year old man, right? He had shown such care, such love for his son since he was born. We were so encouraged by how he was taken to his new role as dad. But somewhere along that dark stretch there between Elkton and Hopkinsville on that four-lane highway, the father fell asleep in the back seat of the car there with his baby in his arms. And in the driver's seat, the mother dozed off as well. Suddenly, everyone awoke as the car was heading for the ditch. And knowing that they were about to crash, the father rolled his body into a bowl and wrapped his arms around his son to keep him safe. But the car didn't just wreck. It turned and rolled and flipped side over side onto its roof and then came to rest on its wheels. And when the father awoke from being knocked unconscious, his, his baby was no longer in his arms. It had been thrown from the car. And there in the darkness and the confusion and all the things that were happening there, they were finally able to locate their son. And they scooped him up in their arms and they began to do CPR and all those things. And the baby was trying to live. And they, someone came along and rushed him to the ER there at Jenny Stewart Medical Center, where the mother and the father, they, they were hurt, but not badly. But the baby would soon succumb to its injuries and die there in the hospital. He was 37 days old. As I got to the ER, the question that everybody was asking was the what question. You see, when we come face to face with tragedies and calamity in our lives, isn't that the first question that we want answered? 
what? What happened? Right? We want to know all the details. When it happened, where it happened, how it happened, who it happened to. We want to gather all the details, all the facts, so that we can understand what exactly happened. And those questions were all answered that night. But after those questions were answered and those questions were satisfied, the reality of what happened set in. And then they began to turn and we began to turn to the much deeper question, to the much bigger question, to the, to the, to the much more perplexing question. Honestly, the more haunting question. Why? Why? Why did this happen? Historian Nathaniel Philbrook, he once wrote, he said, all natural disasters through time, man needs to attach meaning to tragedy, no matter how random and inexplicable the event is. What he's saying there is that it's deep-seated in you and me as human beings. When tragedy comes our way, we want to know why. Think about the tragedies that you faced in life, the calamities that have come into your life. Haven't you asked, why, God? Why? And I want you to know this morning you're not alone. You see, a man in the Bible named Job wondered the very same thing. And through a close encounter with God in a whirlwind, he came to an understanding. And I pray that today you come to that same understanding. Standing. We're continuing in our series that we're calling Close Encounters, where we're kind of walking through some of the theophanies of God. Theophanies are moments when God appears and people closely encounter him and they're changed forever because of that encounter. The title of today's message is Job, Out of the Whirlwind. Most of you probably are familiar with the story of Job from the Old Testament, from the book of the Bible that bears his name, the book of Job. The Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man, not a perfect man, but a righteous man, a godly man. He loved God. He worshiped God. He even interceded for his 10 children before God. And the scripture says that he was wealthy in livestock and he had servants. Well, one day the angel Satan came before God and God and Satan began to have a conversation about Job. God said, have you considered my servant Job? He loves me. And Satan, the great accuser, began to challenge God. God, the only reason Job loves you is because you've blessed him. You have put a hedge of protection around him. You have made his life easy. But if you will touch his life, bring calamity, he will curse you to your face and turn his back on you. And so God granted Satan permission to test Job by bringing about calamity and tragedy in Job's life. But God said that Satan could not touch Job himself. And so soon thereafter, tragedy came from all directions in Job's life, literally. From the south, from the south came the Sabaeans. And these fierce people, they, they took his oxen, they took his donkeys, killed all of Job's servants who were attending them. And then from above, 
The Bible says that fire fell from the sky and consumed all of his sheep and all of the servants that were attending them. And then from the north, the Chaldeans, another fierce people, came down from the north and they took all of his camels and put to death all of his servants that were attending them. And then, worst of all, from the east, while his sons and daughters were having a party at the oldest brother's house, a, a catastrophic wind blew and brought the house down on them all, killing every one of them. So in one day, in one day, Job lost his wealth. He lost his servants. He lost his children, literally hit from every direction. But in the wake of hearing all this news, we read the most famous quote in the book of Job. Job 1, 20 through 22, the Bible says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And don't miss this. And worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we read this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Maybe your translation says he did not blame God. In other words, he didn't say, God, you messed up. This is your fault and you are wicked for doing this. He didn't, he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. At least at this point. At least at this point. Well, Job stood steadfast for the Lord. But the next time, that Satan was in the presence of God again. The topic of Job came up again. And this time Satan railed against God. Ha, you touched everything around him. I tell you this, God, yeah, he may have stood steadfast that time, but touch his body now, skin for skin, and he will curse you to your face. And so God again granted Satan permission to test Job by afflicting him and God again put parameters around Satan. He said, you can afflict his body, but you cannot take his life. And soon Job broke out in boils from head to toe. Uh, if you've ever had a boil, you know how painful one is. And the Bible says that he was covered from head to toe. I mean, it was so painful. The only way that he could find relief is to take shattered, broken pieces of pottery and scrape his body so that his boils may ooze forth. It was a pitiful state to be in. Pitiful state to be in. His wife either out of sympathy for him or maybe she was so sick and grossed out by what she was seeing, she begged him, Job, just go ahead and curse God and die. Just get it over with. But Job responded in Job 2.10, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Again, that word there, evil, is probably better translated as calamity. Trouble in this world. 
And then we're told again at the end of verse 10, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips, at least not yet. But Job in chapter three falls into a deep depression in chapter three. He begins to lament the very fact that he was ever born. He had lost his wealth. He had lost his children. He had lost his health. He had lost his wife's love. And here he was, a broken man. And it was so hard to bear. That is the what of this tragedy. That's the first question that we come to and we ask when we come into the midst of tragedy. What happened? But once that question is answered, which question do we turn to, church? Which one is it? Not the what question, but the why. Just like in that ER at Jenny Stewart Medical Center in Hopkinsville, Kentucky in 2008, the what quickly turned to why. And that's what the next 34 chapters in the book of Job explores. Throughout those chapters, although there, there, there are five different people talking, you, you basically get three human attempts at answering the big why question. And I want to kind of detail those with you for just a moment so that you and I can see some of the answers that sometimes we as human beings try to come up with to answer why. Why, God, did this happen? Attempted answer number one, why did this happen? Was this, because God has sinned. God has sinned. Bad things, according to this viewpoint, should not happen to good people. Bad things should not happen to good people. God's made a mistake here. At the very least, he's made a mistake. Maybe even worse, God has committed an injustice. He has given me bad when I deserve good. Therefore, God is not just. God is not fair. How many of you have ever been tempted to say these sorts of things? Or maybe you've even said these things. This was actually Job's argument all throughout. And he increasingly gets more and more emphatic. God, you are not just. Come explain yourself. You see, this is typically our default reaction when it has to do with ourselves. When you and I face calamity, we try to put it all together and we say, I am a good person. I don't deserve that. I am right in my eyes. I am just in my eyes. The problem can't be with me. The problem must be with God. God got this wrong. That was the first, that was the first attempted answer. The second attempted answer that we would see in the book of Job, why did this happen, was this one here. Not because God had sinned, but because you have sinned. Bad things, according to this viewpoint, only happen to bad people. All the proof that you need. If you, you say, well, I, I didn't know I was bad. Well, do you know how you know you're bad? Because something bad happened to you. That's the, that's the way this viewpoint sees it. Because bad things never happen to good people. Bad things only happen to bad people. Now, who would admit this morning that they've thought like that before? Now, especially we think like this when, it's, when it happens to somebody else, right? You, you may not know exactly what's going on in their life, but maybe you do. And we just kind of assume, hmm, 
they must be getting what they deserve. Right? Sometimes when it's somebody else, we, don't, we, we shouldn't get what we deserve, but boy, I bet they're getting what they deserve. We often go that route. But here's the third attempted answer that we see in the book of Job. Why did this happen? And this one's, this one's kind of nuanced here. You got to stick with me for just a moment. Here's the third answer that we see attempted here in the book of Job. Because you had unrealized sin in your life. You, you hadn't sinned yet, but that sin was just lying dormant in you just waiting for the right opportunity to come out. And so God put you in this situation to bring out your sin. From this viewpoint, bad things are God's way of exposing the bad in us that we didn't even know we had. Now, all three of those answers fall short of the totality of God's word in answering the why question. I wanna walk through them just briefly here to help us, okay? Why does, the, does, the, does answer number one, why does it fall short? Answer number one was God has sinned. Why does it fall short? <laughs> it falls short because for you and me to say that God sinned is sin itself. There is no sin in God. Psalm 145 verse 17 says the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. James 1.13 tells us very emphatically, God cannot be tempted with evil. And then in 1 John 3.5, we read this, in him there is no sin. Now the in him is primarily talking about God the Son, Jesus Christ. But what is true of God the Son is true of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because they are one God in three persons. And so if there's no sin in Jesus, there's no sin in the Godhead, period. So there is no sin in God. And to say that there is is sinful itself. The problem, beloved, is never God. So we got to throw this one out, man. Get rid of this one. How about the second one? The second one, the, the, the second attempted answer was, you have sinned. You want to understand why this thing happened, this bad thing? It's because you sinned. And I want to say to you this morning, maybe that is why that happened. But I want to say also, maybe that's not why. You see, God could certainly be disciplining you for your sin. Right? Bad things can happen when we do bad things. We see over and over again in Scripture, don't we? Where God says that he will punish the wicked and where he will discipline those whom he loves. But we can't always just jump to the conclusion that if something bad happened, then somebody must have sinned. You see, I'm reminded of that blind man that walked by Jesus and the disciples in the Gospel of John chapter 9. The disciples noticed that that man was blind and they turned to Jesus and they said there in John 9, verse 2, they said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because in their mind, if he was blind, this bad thing happened in his life. Somebody must have sinned. 
And then Jesus says this in verse three. He says, it was not this man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What, what Jesus is saying here is that you and I, we can't just jump to the conclusion that if, that, if, that if something bad has happened in a person's life, that it is certainly because of sin. See, God doesn't just oversee the world in that way. Sometimes God does give us what we deserve when we sin. But many times God gives us mercy and grace, which we don't deserve. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, verse 45. He said, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So this attempted answer here, you have sinned. That's why it might not be wrong, but it also might not be right. So we have to be really careful putting forth this answer. It's not so black and white. We can't just jump to that conclusion. How about the third how about the third attempted answer? Why? Why does it fall short? Well, here, here's the third answer again. Because you had unrealized sin in your life. Again, you hadn't sinned yet, but God knew if he did this, you would sin. Now you gotta understand, certainly God wants to refine us. He wants to get rid of any and all sin in us, but we have to be very careful to say that God never tempts us to sin. Amen? God never works in your life so that you might sin. James 1.13 makes this abundantly clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So while God may put us into a situation to test us, his desire and his purpose in that is that good may come out of it, that we might stand strong and live, follow him. He never puts us in a situation for the purpose of tempting us to sin. So all three of these answers are at best insufficient and at worst, all out wrong. So here in the book of Job, y'all, in the face of tragedy, as we move from the what question to the why question, we get 34 chapters of bad answers. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the Bible, but boy, Job is a whooping, right? <laughs> you get in the book of Job, it's like, oh my goodness, right? And he's building, why did God do it this way? Because God is building up in you and me the desire for the right answer to come out. Right? By the time we get to chapter 38, we are so ready to begin to get good answers. And so praise God, we go to Job 38. Man has tried to answer, but now God has had enough. He's heard enough of the accusations. He's heard enough of the feeble attempts to explain why. And at one point, Job even cries out to God in Job 31, 35. He calls out God. He said, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He's calling God out. God, come to trial. Come to court and answer for yourself. Prove 
that you are just. And what does God do? God shows up. We get a theophany here, a close encounter with God. Look at verse one in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. God manifests himself as a tornado. Can you imagine standing before that and hearing God's voice speak to you out of that? And by this point, we're so ready for God to tell us why. Why has Job suffered like this? Why have we suffered like this? But here's the amazing thing this morning that you need to see from the book of Job. God never answers why. Never does he answer why. Instead, God in his infinite wisdom ignores the why question altogether and instead answers a more important question, which is the who question. When we want to know what has happened and we figure that out, our minds immediately go to the why question. Why did this happen? But God here in the book of Job says that more than you and I need to know what, and we need to know why, we need to know who. In the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our calamity, we need to know who. And to help Job and us understand the who question, God begins to ask questions himself. And so we're going to look at four life-changing questions from Job's close encounter with God. These are questions that you and I need to keep in mind when you and I face hard things and difficulties and trials, calamities and tragedies as we process these things in our lives. And these questions don't tell us why, but they remind us of the who. The first question out of the whirlwind that God asks Job and asks us is this. Essentially, it's this. Are you sovereign over the physical processes of the earth? Now, as I ask these questions, and I'm going to read some of the passages here from the book of Job as God is asking questions. I want you to picture God in the whirlwind before you and God talking to you and asking you these questions. You are Job in this moment. Are you sovereign over the physical processes of the earth? And just to give you a taste of the word of God here, go to Job 38 verse four. Were you, where were you? God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made it clouds its garments and, and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come. 
and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And he goes on to point to many other things here in nature that God, that God has sovereign control over. He oversees these physical processes of the earth, but it all comes down to this question that you and I have to wrestle with this morning and answer. Are you sovereign over the physical processes of the earth? Job, are you? Yes or no? Beloved, are you? Yes or no? Then God moves on to his second question, out of the whirlwind, and it's essentially this question. Are you able to care for the creatures of the earth. He, he moves from creation itself to the creatures that walk the earth. This is what we could ask to sum up Job 38 and 39. Are you able to care for the creatures of the earth? Again, just to give you a taste. We'll start there in Job 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Let, let these questions wash over you. Satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the wade in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Chapter 39 now. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know when the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. And God goes on and on to talk about other animals and other beasts of the earth that he oversees and cares for. But it all comes down to this question. Are you able to care for the creatures of the earth? Job, are you? Church, are you? Then God from out of the whirlwind essentially asks the third question. Well, and this is a big one. This is a tough one. Are you better at being God than God? That's how we could sum up Job 41 through 14. Are you better at being God than God? And to just give you a taste, look at verse seven, Job 40, verse seven, and reading down, dress for action like a man, God says to Job. I'll question you and make you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me and you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked there uh, where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. In other words, Job, are you a better God than God? Are you better at being God than God? 
Brother and sister, are you better at being God than God? Now, I know you'd never say that out loud. You'd never say, yeah. (laughs) But how many times have you and I thought that? God, I would have done it that way. This way would have been much better, we might say. Or we might think, God, are you sure about that? You might need to rethink that. You may not admit to thinking that you would be better at being God than God, but you'd sure like to give him a few coaching tips, right? And then finally, God from out of the whirlwind essentially asked this fourth and final question. Are you able to control the most fearsome creatures in earth's history? Are you able to control the most fearsome creatures in earth's history? What are those two creatures? Well, he names behemoth and he names Leviathan. Now, behemoth, some would argue, is describing the hippopotamus. Others would say, no, 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 it's not the hippopotamus. It's an elephant he's describing. But I would go back even further than that, even bigger than that. And I would say it's likely that he's describing a large plant-eating dinosaur like Brontosaurus. He eats grass like an ox. He has a huge tail that can uh, be as, as big as a tree and as stiff as a tree. He is the first of the works of God. I'm not saying here that Job and the dinosaurs were contemporaries, but certainly ancient people like Job had heard of dinosaurs. Job, could you control a brontosaurus? Could you even control a hippopotamus? How about you, brother and sister? Well, not behemothin, what about Leviathan? Leviathan is a sea monster. Mentioned four times in scripture. Perhaps it's a prehistoric killer whale or a giant shark, or perhaps it's describing a sea dinosaur of some sort like Mosasaurus. He says, can you pull up Leviathan with a fish hook? Job, could you control Mosasaurus or a great shark or a killer Well, beloved, could you? And what is the answer to every one of these questions? The answer is what, church? No, no, you and I can't do any of those things. Job couldn't do any of those things, but guess who can? God can. God is sovereign over the physical processes of the earth. God is able to care for the creatures of the earth. God is better at being God than you and I could ever be. It's not even a contest. And God is able to control the most fearsome creatures in earth's history. This is the God that is speaking out of the whirlwind. This is the God who is lovingly, wisely, righteously, powerfully overseeing your tragedy, your calamity. And although you want to know why, you don't need to know why. Because God has told you who. God has told you who. The almighty, all-knowing, all-present God who always does what's right and loving and wise. That's the who. And when you know the who, you don't have to know the why. And so what are you and I to do? Through this close encounter, as we see these life-changing questions here, what are you and I to do? Here's what you and I are to do. You and I are to hold 
our fault-finding tongues and trust God. You see, in the middle of God's questions, God asks Job there in 40 verse 2, Job 40 verse 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job was wise enough to promise to shut his mouth and to hold his tongue. Job 40 verse 3 through 5, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Beloved, when we come to know the who, we are to hold our tongues and trust God. Trust God to always be in control. Trust God to always care for you. And trust God to always do what's glorious, right, and good. You see, knowing the who, it makes all the difference in the world. And so every time your anxiety, your fear, your grief, all of those things begin to rise, remember who has you in his loving hand. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 29 through 31. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Beloved, God's got this. And you can trust Him. Here's my final prayer as the praise team comes forward. May you encounter God and never be the same. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.